This is the Serial at Midnight Podcast. Howdy guys, welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland, and in this episode, let's geek out to Laurel and Hardy. Now, the thing that has opened the door for this conversation that you're about to see is a new release from Flickr Alley. It's a two Blu-ray set called Laurel and Hardy Year One, the newly restored 1927 Silence. Uh, it actually, 1927 is the first year that Laurel and Hardy really uh, became a comedy team. That's the beginning of the Laurel and Hardy's story, but actually the set begins in 1921 because there are films that they were in together but weren't necessarily the team that we know. Uh, every short in this set has a kind, there's 15 of them, has a commentary by Randy Scretved, who is the reigning uh, biographer, expert, commentator on Laurel and Hardy and Laurel and Hardy history. When I think of Laurel and Hardy, I always think of Randy. I first got to know him a couple of years ago when uh, the Definitive Restorations, Laurel and Hardy, the Definitive Restorations came out because he was involved with that as well. Uh, and so I reached out to him and I was like, would you come talk to me about Laurel and Hardy? Talk about the set, this new Flickr Alley set. Talk about year one. Talk about uh, your fandom for Laurel and Hardy because this isn't just uh, sort of a, uh, a spotlight on a release. This is bigger than that. This is about Laurel and Hardy fandom, scholarship. The, listen, here's the thing. Silent movies are intimidating. I've heard from a lot of you guys. You're like, where do I get started? Because you know, guys, I'm, I'm really into movie history. Silent movies are intimidating because there's a barrier there. Not just the lack of sound, but they often have looked so bad. Really, they just, they haven't looked good because they're, you know, I'm talking about a hundred years ago. And so they're multiple generations removed from the source most of the time. They look dim, dark, or blurry. And it's just hard to enjoy that. And that's not ideal when it comes to film. But thanks to the restoration efforts of so many people over the last few years, we are getting things like this collection. And like like Laurel or Hardy, which I've got here by me if you're watching the video version, which is uh, uh, the, the shorts, you know, silent shorts from each of the guys, not together, Laurel or Hardy. And then the definitive restorations. There's never been a better time to find this stuff, to connect with classic comedy. And by watching these restorations, I mean, it really removes any barrier that was there before. You can see patterns and textures on clothes. You can see the, like the wood grain in a fence. It is unbelievable. It really shows you that 100 years ago wasn't actually that long ago. They look like us, they act like us, they eat and drink like, I mean, the, you see what they're eating. Like there's a scene in one of them where this guy's eating a sandwich. And like, I can see the meat, I can see the texture of the bread. I'm like, is that sort of a hard roll? What is that? It is incredible. Uh, and so this is a great opportunity. And I wanted to talk to Randy about this because he knows so much, but more than his knowledge is his passion and his joy for Laurel and Hardy. So I specifically wanted to frame this conversation as geeking out about Laurel and Hardy because that's what I want to do. I love these guys. I think they're hilarious and I think it's timeless. And uh, and Randy agrees. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Randy Scretvet. Uh, okay, I was telling you the story about how Roach doesn't own all the Laurel and Hardy films uh, or the successors to Hal Roach, mm -hmm. which right now is, at least this week, uh, is the... Uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment Company. <laughs> really? Yeah. About a year ago, it was Sonar Entertainment. And before that, it's been Robert Helmy 
And then there was the terrible dark period when Hallmark Cards owned it and didn't want to do anything with it and wouldn't let anybody else do anything with it and basically removed Laurel and Hardy from the culture. Uh, as I always say, Hallmark Cards, in the, in the case of Laurel and Hardy, did not care to send the very best. <laughs> you know uh, what? That's interesting, too, because Hallmark. So I'm an, I'm a child of the 80s and they got their hands on some of those cartoons from the 1980s, some of the classic cartoons that I grew up with. And they they made new versions of them. I guess this was at some point in maybe the late 90s and destroyed mm -hmm. the original source elements that they oh, had. Oh, no. So there can never be HD scans of some of this stuff because Hallmark, this is allegedly, right? I don't want to put any libel out there, but that's that's the story is that they had everything destroyed, just like burned it or whatever. It's crazy. Well, I understand that that was almost the fate of the Laurel and Hardy films of the Laurel and Hardy or the Hal Roach library because they didn't want to pay the storage bills on it. And at the 11th hour, somebody called Richard W. Ban, who has done so much for Laurel and Hardy and Hal mm -hmm. Roach Scholarship, and they said, you know, is there somewhere we can store this? And he said, yes, the place I've been telling you where you should be storing it all along, and that's UCLA. And so it finally all went to UCLA, and uh, it was a donation. It was not a deposit. It was a donation. So UCLA owns that stuff. It's not something that they can call back, that Hallmark yeah. can call back. Actually, Hallmark is not part of the picture anymore. Right. But that was really a terrible period. Um, so anyway, things are happening. Things are, are much better now because um, a couple of years ago, I worked on the uh, definitive restorations of some of the talkies for Kit Parker. Yes, there it is. Yeah, here we go. As, as Richard Band says, every one of these is its own, uh, has its own case history and its own terrors and hor horrible stories about what happened to the film. And it's like a, there's, a, there's a different problem for every one of them. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, you know, these films, these films were loved to death is the problem. You know, they were so popular and it's really weird. You know, the Hal Roach, the people who, who ran the Hal Roach studios always seem to assume that whatever the new licensee was, it's always going to be the last one that nobody else would ever be interested in these old things ever again. And you would think after the mid fifties, they would realize, Hey, you know, these things have some staying power, especially with television. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but they never went back and refurbished the, 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 the library. They just kept reprinting and exhausting everything that they had. So that's why now, you know, we're, we're, it, it, Serge Bromberg doing this set has had to really, uh, search archives all over the world and find fragments here and there, you know, little pieces here and there sometimes of these films and whatever is the best condition is what gets used. And they're really careful too, you know. They're even if something's missing a few frames, they they go to whatever source they have that will fill that in. And uh, they, try to, of, yeah. they try to make it as, as seamless as possible. I, you know, I noticed there's some moments in um, in Love and Weep where you can tell that all of us, you know, there's a little section of maybe ten seconds where they had to go to a, a source that wasn't as as good a generation as what most of the film is, mm -hmm. but. They made sure it was in there, you know, and maybe that's the right. best they have on that particular little little tiny section, but they put it in. The level of restoration that's happening right now is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And one of the things, I, I do want to talk to you about that, especially because you're so heavily involved with the year one collection that's just come out from Flickr Alley. And you've done commentaries for every single uh, film that's on this set. I mean, I've listened to them and you are amazing. And I want to talk to you about those commentaries. <laughs> you you make it so interesting. It could be dry, right? But it's not dry. It feels really engaging, but we'll, we'll get to that. But what what's happening with the restorations right now is kind of mind blowing because um, 
I am not nearly like you're the guy. You, that's why I asked. I was like, you know, we, we started talking a couple of years ago when the definitive restorations came out and mm -hmm. I connected with you and I was like, you know so much. You've, you've written the definitive volume, the definitive book about this. You've got the script, the books. You are an archivist. You are a biographer. Uh, you know so much about Laurel and Hardy, but why now? What is it that's happening right now? Because I mean, it's really been the last five years or so. We're seeing quality like we've never seen before. Is it technology catching up with I the think fans? One, th one thing that's happening is sadly is sort of the death of film, actual film. Um, you know, before the idea was, okay, we have to do a photochemical restoration first. Yeah. And then once we've done what we can do with that, then we go to digital and do a digital cleanup. Well, the photochemical restoration is what takes a lot of time and a lot of money and, and takes forever. Now, they're basically bypassing that and just saying, let's do a 4K scan of whatever we've got, and we'll go right to digital and do a digital cleanup, which is a lot cheaper and a lot faster. That's why classic flicks, when they did those uh, Little Rascals yeah. restorations just recently, mm -hmm. those came out very fast, and they, they look and they sound great. The, the problem is there are no restoration prints of those. You can make them. You can you can write right. from digital back to film, which is probably what they should do. So it's kind of sad. The uh, the Scott McQueens of the world, the people who uh, and, and Bob Gitt, you know, the people at UCLA uh, uh, Film and Television Archive who, who worked in photochemical, working with film all the time. That's kind of going by the wayside. Um, you know, they when they've project films in theaters now they don't have a movie projector they don't have film mm -hmm. um there's very few people like i guess quentin tarantino will still make his yeah. movies on film the old-fashioned way and maybe a couple of others but for the most part the world has gone to digital now of course i'm always saying digital is going to be the new nitrate uh because we've all had hard drives corrupt on us yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> we've all had to replace things because they don't play anymore well how often is that going to happen with films that are only on digital format? It probably will happen. Um, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if, if 30 years from now, if I'm still alive at 94, uh, you know, people saying, well, you know, that film from uh, 2007 that was digital only, we don't have any copies of that anymore. I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. So, you know, you... you but you, it's in you, the cloud. Chances, but at, at least for now, while we still have physical media and we haven't entirely gone just to streaming uh which is a whole another thing that tangent um uh, at least we have discs and as, as long as we have hardware to play them on then we should be okay for the next generation or so that's the thing that people worry about when anytime i start talking about physical media which is you know as often uh people are like yeah but how many how long will the players be around and that's really the thing but what i try to tell people is like well you know i can go on amazon right now and there's 3.5 floppy disk drives that companies are making brand new I'm like when was the last hmm. time any of us used a three and a half floppy disk drive hmm. uh eight people make eight nancy sinatra's putting out her she's got a new collection coming out on eight track you can get it on vinyl you can get it on cassette or eight track Ringo Starr recently was promoting his newest EP, and he says, you know what I sell a lot of? Cassettes. Yeah. He says, kids think they're cool. Yeah. Well, that's that's one thing I like about the young generation is they like, they like LP records. They call them vinyls. I never called it vinyl. I, yeah, vinyls. It's a record album right. to me. Yeah. But whatever they want to call it, as long as they're buying it and making, making new turntables and styli available, that's great because yeah. that benefits me 
with a barn full of 40,000 records in my backyard. So, Ooh, <laughs> wow. And, and I, I, I only deal with vinyl. I deal with shellac because I like 78s, which were not mm -hmm. on vinyl. There was no such thing yet. So uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish because you need several different needles of different widths to play yep. those. And uh, happily, I have a turntable which will play anything from 20 to 96 RPM and uh, play them backwards if you need and play uh, a vertical or lateral grooves. So I'm, I'm set for discs. You get the 19, like the 1945 back masking where they were putting in all those satanic messages backwards. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You play, no, play like, like, and then you play it back you can you can go to the end of the beatles record the 45 of rain and hear john lennon forward at the end of rain on that mm -hmm. one so i was doing that when i was a kid i had a turntable a suitcase uh record player and it had 16 33 45 78 and n n was neutral it took it out of drive and you could take your finger and spin uh -huh. it backwards so you know we had sergeant pepper and it's like oh what are they playing yeah. <laughs> so anyway i've gone off on another tangent well but, so this is hold on i gotta uh, so you just saw beatles we're talking about records how are you such an old soul to have come up when you came up but connect with things from so much earlier than you oh well uh, I've loved this stuff since earliest childhood. I mean, I first encountered Laurel and Hardy when I was, I think, five. Um, there was a, 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 I'd already fallen in love with the Universal Monster movies, mm -hmm. and happily, my parents didn't forbid me to see those. I never, th I was never scared by them. I just thought they were creepy in a fun way, right? Because uh, you know, you never saw the Frankenstein monster ever really dispatch anybody. He just sort of shoved people out of the way, and that was it. Uh, uh, and they were showing, uh, oh, Shirley Temple and uh, Charlie Chan. Sorry, folks. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the Three Stooges were on television. And my mom was a little concerned about the Three Stooges, the violence in the Three Stooges. She said, you should try and find Laurel and Hardy because they're, they're like the Three Stooges, but they're, they're not as violent. And so one magic week, good old uh, Channel 9 out here in Los Angeles, KHJ-TV, they had a show called The Million Dollar Movie, and they'd show the same movie for seven nights, all seven nights a week. And I must have caught the golden age of comedy on a Sunday. That was a Robert Youngson compilation of great scenes from Max Sennett and Hal Roach silent comedies and heavily emphasizing Laurel and Hardy. And, you know, this was a whole new world for me. And everything was just, I loved the clothes. I loved the cars. I loved the way everything was just so bright and shiny and clean. I wish LA looked like that now. <laughs> and <laughs> Laurel and Hardy were really, really funny. And not too long after that, uh, they showed Swiss Miss, which was the first talkie I saw of Laurel and Hardy. And then not too long after that, they began showing Laurel and Hardy shorts at seven in the morning and five in the afternoon. And because the, the syndication package is not that big, it wasn't too long before I'd seen a pretty substantial chunk of their work. And this is all before Stan Laurel died, because I started keeping a scrapbook, a Laurel and Hardy articles scrapbook. And the obituary for Stan is several pages into the scrapbook. I have a story about that too. <laughs> well, okay, let's. I want to hear the story. But how? One that's one of the things that I think benefits your generation coming up when you did, because of course now we have streaming, we have a million channels on the dial, yeah. and people don't discover things like they used yeah. to be able to discover things. And I hear from people all the time who don't watch. I'm going to try to avoid like the old man yells at clouds kind of thing, but younger people think movies from the eighties and the nineties are like a million years ago. 
-hmm. So the idea of a Laurel and Hardy or, you know, the Marx brothers or Abbott and Costello or any of that stuff uh, seems so foreign. And I wonder how they discover any of this stuff, but because like we're talking about, you know, wonderful curated collections with ex excellent special features and great restorations. But if you don't know who any of these people are, yeah. why do you care? You know, and you came up at a time when you had the shock theater packages, you had the comedy packages, you had matinees at the theater. And in many ways, it was sort of a second life, maybe the first second life for a lot of this stuff. And so there's a lot of people that love this uh, and who are involved in these restorations from your generation because you got to see it all the time. Yeah. And, and uh, well, yeah, before, before, uh, uh, Mr. Reagan signed the thing that made uh, unlimited commercial time available per hour, which yeah. killed old movies overnight on TV and gave rise to infomercials instead. Uh, you know, many, I mean, when we, when we didn't have home video, there were many times when I was a kid, I'd have to set the alarm for two in the morning because they were showing way out West on channel 11 and God only knew when I was going to be able to see that again. You know, so there were a lot of times when I did that as a kid, <laughs> I think we're going back to that with streaming. We're going back to a, a, an era where the people who have the content control what you can see and they'll make it available or pull it depending upon their whim. Uh, yeah. So that's why I like physical media because the stuff I like is not, mass audience material you know i like movies right. from 1933 and those are not going to be on netflix right. <laughs> you know, so get them now on dvd while you can because they're not going to be readily available in a few years you know absolutely but anyway, back to the story you were going to tell you were going to talk about you're oh, talking about obituaries and you were oh yeah yeah I, well I, my story about stan is uh, uh uh i was you know had fallen in love with laurel and hardy i think i was six years old and uh, getting ready for school and prattling on about them. And gee, I said, I said, gee, I wonder if Laurel or Hardy are still alive because I knew that these films were 30 years old at that time. And as soon as I said that, my dad came in and brought the Los Angeles Times and there on the front page, it said, Stan Laurel, 74, film comedian, dies at home. And I went, whoa, you know, it was almost like I just asked that question and there was my answer. And, uh, you know, so it's very sad to know that a, uh, you know, had I known he was still around, I could, you know, two weeks earlier, I could have called him on the phone because <laughs> he was in the Santa Monica phone book. I could have I could have called the operator and say, please give me his number, uh, which was Xbrook three, five, six, five, six. And uh, uh, I could have talked to him. And I'm sure I bet there were many six year old kids that called Stan Laurel on the phone at, at different times just to say hello. And I'm sure he uh, enjoyed that. Probably he certainly had lots of people who were just fans come over to his apartment and chat with him for the afternoon, you know? So uh, he was very, uh, lo very loyal to his fans. There's a, a great website called lettersfromstan.com. And it's just collected all of the thousands of letters that he wrote over the years, most of which are from his years of retirement. And many of which are just, you know, thanks so much for your kind words. Glad you're still enjoying our films. And, you know, but it, 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 it shows you how much he cared about, just plain folks who were uh, just fans. You know, they weren't mm -hmm. important. They were just people who liked his movies. So anyway, uh, yeah, I've been involved in this. And you asked about music. Um, I loved the background music in the Laurel and Hardy shorts, which we now know was written mostly by Leroy Shield. A lot of it later on was written by my dear friend Marvin Hatley, uh, with whom I got to produce an LP record back in 1982 when I was a starving college student. Um, uh, he, he was still a great musician, and he had some actual original tracks without the dialogue of, of his music and so we got that out on an LP back in 1982 um, 
But I, I love the music, and I said, you know, there's got to be more than stuff than this. My parents had swing era 78s. They had Benny Goodman and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I said, well, this is earlier. This is 1931, 32. And in those days, you could go to a Salvation Army store, and there would be stacks of old 78s for a quarter apiece. So I just started, you know, just sort of blindly. If, if it said Foxtrot and it looked like it was from the 20s, I'd go, okay, you know. And pretty soon I kind of figured out what what – bands were good or what labels were good and started to amass a collection and now it's <laughs> now it's too big <laughs> yeah. but but it's what you know i've been doing a radio show for 40 years called forward into the past it's on every sunday afternoon from two to five pacific time on good old kspc claremont out of pomona college and you can get it worldwide at www.kspc.org and uh, I play, it's a three-hour show, and the first and third hours are vintage music of all kinds from the 1920s through the early 40s, and the middle hour is old-time radio drama and comedy. So it's sort of the whole world of audible entertainment from that era. Um, but I got interested in all of that because I like the music in the Laurel and Hardy pictures. That's amazing. So, yeah. How amazing. Once again, I've gone down several rabbit holes. <laughs> I love it. I, that's that is what you hope for. You hope for things that you can continue to talk about. When did you realize that your Laurel and Hardy fandom was more than a fandom and that you were turning into some sort of a chronicler or an archivist? Pretty early. Well, the first Sons of the Desert meeting I went to was in August of 1971. So I was 12 years old. Um, the secretary, it was the Way Out West tent. Every chapter of the Sons of the Desert club is named after a Laurel and Hardy film. And in Los Angeles, because we're on the West Coast, it was the Way Out West tent. And the secretary, and she's still very active in Sons of the Desert, was a lady named Lori Jones. She's now Lori Jones McCaffrey. And you were supposed to be 16 in order to be able to get into the tent because they were at venues that served alcohol. But she, I guess my plea to join the Sons was passionate enough so that she bent the rules and let me in, even though I was only 12. And uh, at that first meeting, it was at the uh, Jewish War Veterans Hall in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, at that first meeting, I met Joe Rock, who had produced several solo Stan Laurel comedies in 1924 and 1925. I met Stan Laurel's second wife, Ruth. And I met Marvin Hatley, who had written the Cuckoo Song and did the scores for Way Out West and Blockheads and Saps at Sea and Chump at Oxford. And they were just there as members, you know, just and and I think they said, you know, well, we have with us and they probably stood up and waved. But then they ran Hogwild. And I was thinking, these people are the story. They are they are Laurel and Hardy history. Why are we watching Hogwild? We could all recite Hogwild for you, I'm sure. We've all seen it. Why aren't those people up here on stage giving us their history? Because Joe Rock was already something like 88 years old at that time. I'm going, you know, these people are not going to be around forever. Mm -hmm. So um, mainly at banquets, they would have an annual banquet. And at that point, everybody would get up and speak. And so I began bringing a tape recorder to those. And sometimes I would bring a, when I finally got a cassette recorder, I'd bring that and I'd make sure to tape. Marvin Hatley was always playing piano before the meeting started. And he was a wonderful stride style pianist like Fats Waller. And so I would always have my tape recorder propped on top of the piano recording that. Of course, he would be interrupted every 20 minutes by somebody asking him how he wrote the cuckoo song. <laughs> and he'd have to go through that again, you know, which he didn't mind. But you, you kind of wanted him to keep playing all the great jazz standards. Have you digitized those those tapes, those cassette tapes? 
I'm tr in the process. Okay. As I would still... hate for those, the tape tape just kind of goes away. You know? I know. Well, happily uh, at this point, they're still all holding up. I did uh, when John McCabe was writing his biography on Babe Hardy, he asked me to do the interviews with his widow, Lucille. And I think I did 30 hours of, of interviews with her. And I was kind of dismayed because he didn't use all that much of it. And then there was a lot of great material there. So I still have that. Um, and yeah, I need to, I, I need to digitize that. And I think I have software whereby I can play the tape to the computer and it will spit it out as text. That's the main thing is just getting yeah. it, uh, you like know, a transcription speech, speech to text. Cause I don't yeah. want to do what I had to do 40 years ago, which is, you know, you play six words on the, on the cassette and then type, 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 type. And then the next six words that takes forever. And I don't have yeah. the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm 64. <laughs> Technology I, has come a long way. That, yeah. yeah, well, and not only do I have those tapes, I've got interviews with about 100 people from old-time radio um, from 30 years ago. So, you know, actors, writers, directors, musicians, sound, sound effects men. I've got a lot of that stuff, which I want to do for a, another book. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always uh, thanking me at, in my teens and 20s for uh, getting interviews with all those people who are now gone because <laughs> they're gone now. But. Yeah. As far as as far as I, I know, I have um, I have interview tapes going back at least as far as 1974 when I was 15, because I've got George Marshall uh, at a son's banquet talking about working on Toad in a Hole. And um, in fact, when the uh, magic behind the movies, the most recent edition came out in hardcover, it included a CD which had some uh, excerpts of uh, interviews. And I think, yeah, those are on the um, those are also on the definitive restorations set as one of the extra goodies so you can hear my tape that i made when i was 15 of george marshall talking about toad in a hole and you know there's a phone call that i made with anita garvin and uh, an interview i did in 1981 with marvin hatley and so so yeah i you know i knew the clock was ticking and i wanted to get to these people while you could still get their stories and mm -hmm. um, happily you know they were all very eager to talk uh i think they may have liked the idea that a kid who is in his late teens or early twenties was interested in what they had been doing 50 years earlier. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I got, a, I have a lot of wonderful uh, material, but I need to, to get it into digital form. It's true because that would preserve it for everybody. And they would put it out there. You know, I, I know we were talking about digital and what happens to it, but that is a good alternative to just being sitting on a, sitting on a tape or a cassette yeah. tape. Well, I, I just want duplicate copies. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, for example, uh, there's another Blu-ray that just came out and DVD, too, called Stoogerama. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Paul, I have Paul, it. Yeah. Paul, Paul, Paul Gierucki put that together. And I provided some of the extra goodies. There's uh, a, 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 a question and answer session with Larry Fine that was put together by his friends, Jeff and Greg Lindberg. They were students at Loera High School. And uh, the, uh, the drama department needed new curtains for their theater. And so as a fundraiser, uh, they were already good friends with Larry. And they brought him out from the motion picture home in Woodland Hills to Anaheim on March 2nd, 1974. And uh, I was there. And uh, I think I was the only guy who brought a tape recorder which was still a reel-to-reel -reel at that time. I was balancing this reel-to-reel tape recorder and the microphone in my lap as Larry was doing his uh, answering. But even though Larry had had a stroke, he was still um, very funny and had a good memory. His speech was a little bit thick, but it was still you know, well worth attending. And so that audio tape 
now <laughs> and instead of just being one reel to reel sitting in my bedroom closet now it's on the blu-ray and dvd and also i did some i had i shot some super eight sound footage of joe dorita um talking about the three stooges and uh, also there's the uh, audio track of a tv interview that mo did for a little independent uh, uhf station out here kbsc channel 52 from corona california they had a, a show for teenagers called head shop in 1972 and uh, mo howard was a guest on that and i you know live mic'd it i didn't have any way to go directly into it i just live mic'd it on my reel to reel tape machine and so that's on there now too so it's you know as i gradually get these uh little unique treasures that i have uh, onto DVDs or Blu-rays as goodies, I'm always relieved because at least now it's preserved in some other way. Uh, a lot of the stuff on the definitive restorations, like there's the Oliver Hardy scrapbook that I have, uh, which is all of his photos from 1916 and 1917. So every page of that is on there as an extra. And wow. so there, you know, every time I do one of these, it's like, okay, well, there's more more copies of that now. So if my house burns down, God forbid, uh, they won't all be lost, you know. But people get to see it too. They get to enjoy yeah, it. You get yes. to share it. And that's that's the beauty of it. That, you know, yes. we're constantly talking about how we're living in sort of and then I'm going back to physical media so people can, you know, they're like, here he goes again. But I we're living in a golden age for physical media. And people sometimes think that I'm talking about the sales of this stuff. And I'm not, because obviously the sales 15 years ago were more than they are now. But now we're in a specialist area where the things that you're talking about, like Studio Rama, like these restorations. Uh, are loaded up with features that are beyond our wildest dreams. And mm. these stories are being told that we've never heard before, like the scrapbooks and the interviews. It is an incredible time that we find ourselves in right now. And, and it's with the technology catching up with the uh, the material itself and, and just the, the fans having access to this stuff. It blows my mind that we're talking about Laurel and Hardy and the three stooges. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of other restorations. So this is Laurel and Hardy adjacent, but you know, the Laurel or Hardy oh, yeah. mm -hmm. collection. That, that uh, picture of babe is, is from that picture of babe is from, from the babe Hardy scrapbook, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I provided the original for that. Or the scan for that. I don't yeah. see how anybody could look at what's happening right now and be like, uh, it's not a great, it's a terrible time for physical media and have fear instead of appreciation because man, it's a great time for this stuff. It all, it, we're only limited by our time and our money, you know? Yeah, we're, we're much more aware of film history than we were because yeah. you know, the reason I was inspired to write Laurel and Hardy, the magic behind the movies, because I read Joe Adamson's book, Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and sometimes Zeppo, or maybe it's Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo, um, because that was the first film book I read that was really about the making of the films. You know, up till that point, you had biographies which were either very fluffy or full of errors or scandalous, uh, and then you had the films of, uh, fill in the blank, and it would be a synopsis of the film, yep. a few credits, and then six pictures, uh, photographs, and then on to the next film, and that was it. Uh, books about the making of movies just weren't happening, you know, and then we gradually became a little bit more aware of that. And in the seventies, you still had people who were still around. Um, Kevin Brownlow did his Hollywood documentary series about the silent era, doing all sorts of interviews with people in 1978 who were still around to talk about what they'd been doing 50 years earlier. Um, and, you know, I mean that every one of those things creates more and more interest in the history of film. And of course, unfortunately now we're at such a remove in time that you can't really talk to people 
who worked yeah. in silent pictures or early 30s pictures. I got what I could get 40 odd years ago. Uh, there were still quite a few people then. Um, but, you know, we're we're kind of realizing that this is a precious heritage and uh, it's also fragile. So we're trying to document things. Uh, there's so many more resources now. You know, uh, I used to be I used to have to go to the motion picture uh, library, the Academy Library on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills on summer vacations. I'd go there four days a week, which is 35 miles away from my home on congested L.A. freeways. And I'd go there and I'd pull these big bound volumes of hard copy of film daily or Hollywood filmograph or variety or you know all these different trade papers. And there was no index. So you just go through them page by page and hope to find an article about Laurel and Hart. Oh, there's one, you know. And if I got and then I'd either dictate them into my little tape recorder or sometimes I'd bring a typewriter and actually type them up on file cards there. And if I got 12 or 15 articles in a day, that was great. Now I can go online to the Lantern Media History Digital Project, where all of those trade papers have been scanned, and they have a wonderful search engine. And if I type Laurel and Hardy, <laughs> 15,000 articles will come to me, and I don't have to drive to Beverly Hills four days a week now. You know, so it makes it makes the the it, it research so much easier. And because there's so much easier access to so much more material, that too has prompted more film history to be written about because you have primary sources at your disposal much more now. Is that how you're able to keep updating your book? Because you, well, you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, I, the, the, the 1987 edition of magic behind the movies was the best book I could do at that time with what was available. And, you know, by the year, uh, 2005, I was going, well, <laughs> there's so much more now I gotta, I gotta do this all over again from the ground up, you know? So, um, so most of the text that was in the original book is still there, but it's all been augmented. You know, there's, there's twice as much text and four times as many photographs in, uh, the most recent magic behind the movies as in the original, uh, version but photographs, because in the, in those days, everything was done on film for the printer and a photograph was $15 extra that had to be cut into the film of the text. And so we had to be very careful about what photos we were choosing. And I think we had about 225 photos in the original book. Well, now it's all bits and bytes and zeros and ones. And yeah. uh, the printer doesn't care whether it's text or photos. So that's why now, you know, I could just go to town and use all the photos that I wanted. And so that's why there's a thousand photos in it now. Have you ever thought about doing like a digital version of the book with audio clips and with go ahead yeah well um there is a kindle version of scripts volume two uh and i guess they're going to do a kindle version of magic behind the movies although that doesn't seem to me to be a book that kind of lends itself to looking at it on a little screen because uh, it's so photo intensive but mm -hmm. they're going to do what they're going to do um what i would like to do is do not not do a reading of magic behind the movies but do uh an audio documentary a, a new do audio documentary using the interview tapes that i have mm -hmm. i think it'd be much more interesting to hear those people telling their stories rather than have me quote them um you know uh, when george burns did his book gracie a love story they did an audible version of it but it was not the book it was the work tapes it was David Fisher's, who was the uh, the real author. It was his interview tapes with George Burns, and so it it 
it covers the same material, but not in the same words as the book. Mm-hmm. And it's vastly more entertaining. And I think it even won a Grammy as best spoken word recording. So, you know, it, it's wonderful to be sitting in George Burns's study and having him tell you all these great stories, which is basically what you have in, in those. I think it's only on cassettes. Um, yeah. But I, I could do something like that. Uh, it would I, be I have a little... book by Peter Guralnik about Sam Cooke, and uh-huh. it, it's an it's, it's almost like an interactive book. Like it'll have because we love paper books, right? Obviously, we yeah. love paper books. But when you can do these digital things, like there'll be a link or whatever in the text, you can click that and it'll take you to a photo archive or uh, it'll right. take you to an interview or something like that. Oh, okay. yeah. I guess you have to pay for servers for these things because I don't think you have all that there on your device or whatever. But I don't know. It's just something to think about because yeah. you have all these archives that you've built of interviews and photos yeah. and things like that. I, I wrote a big article about the history of radio programming in the 20s, 30s, 40s for Encyclopedia Britannica. And it took 10 years for them to finally publish it in any form. <laughs> wow. The, the, or, happily, they paid me at the time I submitted it. Yeah. And they, and they paid 50 cents a word. And it was a long article. So I got very nicely paid for doing that. But I was just frustrated that it took so long for them to, to get it out. But when they finally did get it out, the digital era had arrived in such a way that it's on their website and it has all sorts of links to audio clips or photographs or whatever. It's not just the text. It's all sorts of extra goodies that they incorporated into it. So that's mm-hmm. that's fun. You know, yeah. it's much, much, much better to hear a clip from a Jack Benny show than to just have me describe it. So, uh, you know, it brings um, it to life. It makes yeah, it. Re- yeah, yeah. 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 And, and that is evidently easily done now. So yeah, we should utilize that to, uh, to help make the history a little more, uh, palatable for young people who probably don't want to just sit and crack open a 600 page book. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, what is the current state of Laurel and Hardy's catalog of their library of films? We're getting these restorations. Is it just is that the tip of the iceberg, or where's it at? Well, you know, I'm glad I'm glad there's basically two teams working on them. There's there's Serge Bromberg and Eric Lang at Lobster Films, and uh, you know they release these things through Flickr Alley, who do these terrific. I mean, Flickr Alley releases. They always have booklets. They always have all sorts of extra goodies. They're very concerned about giving you the history of the film along with the film. You know, they don't do it bare bones. They they do these packages as, as lovingly and as well as possible. Mm-hmm. And then there's Jeff Joseph, uh, who was working on uh, and somehow finding the money to fund restorations of the talkies. So we have two camps uh, working on different groups of films and happily they're all friendly with each other. They don't see each other as competitors and, and happily they, they both call upon me to, to uh, uh, give them some extra goodies. So <laughs> I'm very happy to work for them. Um uh, but, yeah, you know, I hear from both of them that, you know, such and such is in terrible shape and, uh, you know, we're trying as hard as we can to find good material on it. And somehow they do. Uh, I remember just before, um, uh, around the time that Magic Behind the Movies, the, the big one was about to be published, I got a call from Scott McQueen. He would just call me every once in a while. I was very flattered by this. He would just call me every once in a while to like, let me know what was going on with the Laurel and Hardy restoration project at UCLA, which you can still donate to, by the way. Um, uh, They still do photochemical work. Uh, Anyway, he was really despairing about a film called The Chimp. And he said, you know, that one, I don't know that we'll ever be able to do a film restoration on it because it's just in terrible shape. It's full of 
dupe footage and black slug footage. And uh, he said, I thought I was going to get a, a good source from the British Film Institute, but even that wasn't very good. And uh, so I had in my book, I said, we, we hope that uh, someday we can uh, keep the, the uh, chimp from being on the endangered species list. Uh, well, of course, right after the book got published, I got another call from him. and He said, hey, 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 we found a lavender on the chimp. A lavender being like a, uh, what they call a fine grain master positive. So there's the, the, the camera negative, and then they make a fine grain master positive, And from that, they make another negative, And then from that, they make the positive release prints that go out to the theater. So the, the fine grain master positive is like the second generation. And at this late date, that's going to be almost always the best thing you'll find. Right. And uh, so, you know, happily, that by some fluke something was hiding somewhere and uh you know it, it it looks much better than it had um so i i think just the fact that these things are are getting out and people are knowing about the restoration that also might make um other sources more available people might say hey i've got you know in case you need it i've got such and such um about three years ago i just happened to find on ebay some guy up in big bear california had a 35 millimeter negative for Big Business, which is the Laurel and Hardy film where they're Christmas tree salesmen. Now, why this guy in Big Bear, California, had a 35 millimeter negative? Because yeah. <laughs> the other stuff that he had was like old projectors and rewinds and uh, projection lamps and stuff like that. And the only film he had was this 35 mm negative, and he wanted $950 for it. And I said, well, I don't have any 35 millimeter equipment. I can't do anything with it, but I'm going to try and get this and just be a placeholder until somebody needs this, then I'll have it. Mm -hmm. And so thanks to PayPal credit, <laughs> I was able to get it for 950 bucks. And sure enough, uh, about a year to the day after I got it, a guy named Bruce Lawton, who's a film archivist said, Hey, you know, what about that big business negative that you got? You know, cause I, I, I had some frame blowups from it and it looked really, really nice. And he said, "What are you, are you doing anything with that?" And I said, "No, I'm just I just bought it to to have it in case somebody needs it." And he says, "Well, he says, you know, I work with Library of Congress and we'll we'll do a 4K scan on it." And so I sold it to him for what I paid for it. And so that has now been there's a 4K scan of it and they're already working on stuff for 1928 and 1929. So that's going to be one of the sources for for uh, big business. And that mm -hmm. one that is a complete uh, uh, a and negative. They had A and B negatives. You can see there are stills uh, where they're filming Laurel and Hardy films, and there's two cameramen in the silent days right next to each other with the crank cameras, hand crank cameras, one doing the domestic negative and one doing the foreign negative because they felt that the copying uh, uh, stock was not good enough. It, did, it, it degraded the picture quality. So now, at this late date, there are many copies circulating where the two negatives have been intercut and uh, I'll look at something. I'll look at uh, both DVDs of um, your darn tootin' that have been available. I look at it and I'm going, that's what's not in my Blackhawk Super 8 print that I got in 1968. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a different, that's a different angle on that shot. Uh, or in Big Business, the, the foreign negative, um, there, there's a moment in it when uh, Finlayson is about to throw a rock through the windshield of Laurel and Hardy's car. And in the American negative, it's a very tight close-up, and he's looking almost at the camera. He's looking a little bit off to the side, but it's a real tight close-up. In the B negative, for overseas, it's a much wider shot. There's a lot more room around him, and it's almost a profile. 
So you can see that the other camera was off to the to the right of the A, a camera. And these things get intercut now because they're just trying to find whatever has not uh, decomposed, has not had nitrate decomposition. And sometimes, you know, the best source is from the B negative. So, but, but what I had was a complete A negative. So I hope, in fact, I think they have, I think Serge Bromberg said they've got complete A and B on, on uh, big business. So it's, it's technically possible that they could do a 3D uh, version of it because they have a left and a right eye, basically. Wow. <laughs> So, so we'll wow. have to see if that's possible. Yeah. 3D, yeah. Now I can't see in 3d, unfortunately. So it'd be a moot point for me, but I'm, I hope they will, if they've got complete negatives on both, I hope they release both. Mm -hmm, uh, absolutely. I, I, I know that they've got complete negatives, uh, domestic and foreign for Buster Keaton's film, Steamboat Bill Jr. Which are, which are different performances. They're not just different cameras. They're, they, they actually shot whatever they could shoot twice. Obviously they didn't shoot twice the, the bit where the house almost falls on Buster and he, 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 the window is what saves him from being destroyed. Right. Uh, so that's, that's, you can only do once. I'm sure they had more than one camera going on that uh, for protection. Uh, but uh, evidently they do have a complete A and B negative on that. And that would be nice to see both of those, just, you know, those of us who are completists about such things. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. It's really exciting. And, you know, I, I this is, as, as we're talking, this is new. And so I've just pretty much finished going through it. And it's, it is, a, it's an, I'm going to use the word archive again, because it really is. There's so much stuff here. Uh, but your commentaries on every single uh -huh. film here are delightful. And I was wondering, well, well, first of all, I wanted to compliment you on them, because there are a lot of commentaries that are dry and that are, the person seems a little unengaged, but unengaged, but not you. You are just you seem so excited about it. And I wondered if you're just doing this from memory or if you're working off of notes because you don't seem like you're reading. Well, n number one, I ha you got to remember these are comedies, <laughs> so <laughs> don't be too stuffy or pretentious uh, about it. Uh, I, I also like the musical scores. They're they're it's mm -hmm. their piano. It's a single piano, and it's light on its feet, and it's appropriate for comedy. Uh, there have been some comedy reissues where they have, you know, bombastic uh, orchestrations for a, a two-reel comedy. And the, the, the guy making the score thought he was doing Ben-Hur, you know, and it just it works <laughs> against the movie. It's too heavy. Uh, so I'm glad that these are very modest scores because it's that's that's all you need, you know. And yeah. as far as my commentaries are concerned, I, I want them to sound like I'm sitting next to you. Uh, telling you all the fun things about the movie because you asked me to tell them. Not that I'm poking you in the ribs and going, pretty funny, huh? You know, not doing that. <laughs> look at this. Be... Look at this. What's this? Yeah, look at that. Oh, yes. Yeah, there are a lot of commentaries that go, oh, look what they're doing What's now. This, yeah. this is yeah, the uh, part where they go into the, yeah. Yeah, no, no. I, 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 the movie tells me that. I don't need that. Yeah. No, what I do is I, I look through the film, even though I've seen them many times before, I look at them about four or five times and I make notes on uh locations or the supporting actors or you know things to talk about and i also make note of where to 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 do those where to where to introduce each of that i i i like to to, to do any biographical inf information about a supporting actor when they make their entrance um so i try to do it that way and then if there's a, a long stretch where everybody who's already in the movie is already there and they're doing a lengthy routine that's when i can talk about more general things about the movie or the Hal Roach studio or Laurel and Hardy. Um, and I have, I, I use a program called audacity, which is a free uh, recording program. And it's very you record easy to your use. commentaries with audacity. 
Yeah, on on, on this on this on this same laptop. This this laptop that we're doing now is what I use. Nice. And uh, so I have I have <clears throat> I, I type I type up notes. And then I have the film in another window up at the top right of my screen. And then I have the audacity window for, you know, play, pause, record uh, down the bottom right. of. So I've got three, three windows on my desktop and just that's how I do it. Uh, and then, then I, I have my notes to remind me of what I want to say, but I, I speak extemporaneously because I don't want it to sound too rehearsed. Right. Yeah. To, to sound canned or yeah, that's, yeah. that's a death knell. You know what I use Audacity for is to digitize records. So maybe okay. you could use Audacity to digitize. We'll talk in a second. We'll talk after we okay. finish. The <laughs> okay. But you do. You really give the impression that we're just hanging out, and you know. But you are the guy because you know so much about these these films, and you, like, I love Laurel and Hardy, but I know a one hundred one one hundredth of what you know about these things. Well, well, I have my, everybody has their own little niche. You know, I, I don't know nearly as much about the solo films as Rob Stone does. Uh, and uh, uh, A.J. Marriott is the guy who knows the most about the stage work that they did. And um, there's a guy in, in Ling England named Danny Lawrence, who's the go-to guy for Stan Laurel growing up in Ulverston and his early theatrical career and that sort of thing. So everybody has their own little, yeah. <laughs> my, my field of interest was the production of the films. Uh, I mean, I was a filmmaking student and I was making films even when I was in grammar school. And I learned very early that the film that you envision when you first have the idea will have nothing to do with the film that you wind up with because there's just too many variables with mm -hmm. actors, weather, props, costumes, time, money. <laughs> you know, there's just so many things that will have an effect upon the film that you make and that holds true for studio films too you know even mm -hmm. with all the vast resources of a movie studio things change and that's why uh, I brought out the scripts book because Hal Roach said many many times I'm sure I have him saying it to me on tape that 50% of what's in the script will not play mm -hmm. and that was a very wise thing to recognize that that what is really funny when you're in the writer's room and putting it all down on paper once you actually act it out in front of the cameras, it doesn't work. And so that's why at the Hal Roach Studios, they always had gag men sitting there just suggesting stuff that, you know, came to them during the filming. And a lot of times props would suggest uh, uh, material that you hadn't thought of. You know, once you're actually physically there working with the real stuff that was mentioned in the script, you go, oh, you know, we could do something, you know, this, this, this would work. Or um, there's a wonderful little extemporaneous moment in Tit for Tat, which is the one where Laurel and Hardy have an electrical supply store and they get into a fracas with uh, Charlie Hall, who runs a grocery store the next uh, next door over. And Charlie Hall takes a, uh, a bunch of pocket watches and he puts them into this metal cup uh, for a blender. And he, he puts the, the, the or the mix master and he turns it on and it turns all the watches into just individual little parts. You know, they're all demolished. And Stan pours out all the, the parts of the demolished watches. And there's this one little thing that's like a top and he picks it up and he twirls it and it spins. And then he thinks about putting it back. And then he, then he thinks again, and he puts it in his pocket like it's his, his new toy. I'm sure that was just a happy accident. It's certainly not in the script. In fact, the script is almost entirely different from the film. And, uh, you know, those things happen, too, where you just you, you were gifted with a, a wonderful little moment. Um, there's one like that in Putting Pants on Philip that you'll see in in the new Blu-ray where Hardy's about to run after his 
Scottish nephew who once again is attracting attention. Everybody's gathered in front of the Culver building, the big triangular Culver building, looking at this weird Scotsman and Hardy's starting to run from him. And this little dog comes in and <laughs> starts snapping at his heels, you know, and that wasn't planned. <laughs> it was just a dog in Culver city. So, uh, you know, happy accidents happen. And, um, uh, Bob McGowan, who directed uh, the R Gang films, was particularly attuned to that. You know, uh, he knew that the supposed mistakes the kid make, kids make, were actually the gold. You know, that mm -hmm. the, the rough edges were what made that series work. Yeah. And unfortunately, the later directors didn't realize that, and the films got much more slick and professional, but they weren't nearly as much fun. Yeah. So anyway, it's my roundabout way of saying that, yeah, when I do the commentaries, I, I try to cram in as much as I can in the running time of the film, because um, my I figure when the film's over, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go any, any longer than that. Right. And uh, I just try to get as much interesting material about the people and the, uh, the locations. Now, th there's another guy who's got uh, uh, his own little niche, a guy named Chris Bungo, B-U-N-G-O. And if you look for... Chris Bungo Studios, I think it is on YouTube. He's put together a whole bunch of wonderful then and now videos that show the locations for not only Laurel and Hardy, but other vintage films as well, uh, as they look in the film and as they look today. And they're a lot of fun. They're all about six or seven minutes each. And I got a lot of material from that. Chris and I are friends. And so I said, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, you, you, you gave me all those great addresses. I'm going to be using those. <laughs> said, right. oh, yeah, well, look, that's why they're online, you know. So, <laughs> you know, I don't have a copyright on the addresses. Yeah. So uh, that was a great help to me. And, uh, you know, like I say, in many cases, I was able to have the uh, original script in one form or another. Um, there, there's almost always a, a, a difference, as Mr. Roach said. And so I try to, uh, if something shows up in the movie where I know it was different in the script, I'll mention that. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different, uh, uh, sources to draw upon in doing the commentaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the geographical stuff too, because, and you seem to know, I, I don't know LA, I know some LA geography, but you are like, Oh, now we're in Culver city and now we're in, it's like, you yeah. know, <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. Familiarity with it. Duck soup. They keep cutting back and forth between Culver mm -hmm. City and uh, downtown L.A. Yeah. But, you know, movies make their own geography. Uh, right. You know, like the, the like the Orson Welles movie of Othello, which he paid for out of his own pocket over a four year period. There are there are uh, uh, over the shoulder shots, you know, re reversal shots where this one is shot in Spain in 1949 and this one's shot in Italy in 1950. <laughs> but they're they're cut together and the backgrounds are neutral so you have no idea that the you know call and response are two years apart and a whole different country <laughs> it's 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 mind-blowing what's what's fun about it is that the places that do still survive are hmm. living testament like being able to go visit the music box stairs you know that's yeah these sort of like meccas for for people like us you know like you yeah. can still go hunt some of this stuff down which is fun yeah so i love that yeah uh, they're there have been many Laurel and Hardy locations tours, and uh, I imagine they're going to be doing it again next month in October uh, for at least 25 years now. The uh, the neighborhood of the Music Box Steps has had the annual Music Box Steps Day, and they show the film, and they have Laurel and Hardy lookalikes there, and uh, there is a very small park there, which they call Laurel and Hardy Park, and so that's a big, a big deal for that neighborhood. So and it's usually in October, so I'm going to be looking to see if they're doing that again this year. Yeah, very good. 
Well, listen, I don't want to keep, I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, this has been an absolute delight. Tell people where we've talked about books. We've talked about radio shows. Tell people where they can come, where they can keep up with everything you're doing. Uh, well, uh, all my books are available through uh, Amazon. Uh, just, uh, I think if you just go uh, type in Randy Scretvet, you'll find uh, virtually everything that uh, I've written. Um, and also Bonaventure Press, which I think is just uh, www.bonaventure, B-O-N-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E, bonaventurepress.com. Uh, you can get them that way. I think he may still have some copies of the hardcover uh, uh, Magic Behind the Movies, which we only did 2,000 of those, and those are pretty much gone, but he may still have a few of those. Wow. And, uh, that's that's a with the, the CD, the one that has the CD with it. I don't know if he still has the CD or not, but the okay. the print the print quality is a lot nicer on the hardcover. It's the yeah. we had to do the paperback through Amazon because the market for Laurel and Hardy is so international, and 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 actually I think it's a stronger market in in England and Italy and Germany and the Netherlands than it is in the USA, and so unfortunately postage is so prohibitive that if we were to ship uh, books from California to those countries, it would cost more than the book does. So uh, Amazon, you can, you can print it through them and it's printed locally. So somebody in Italy can order magic behind the movies and it's printed near them and it's just local postage. And so the only way we could do it was to have them print it. I think the printing quality on the paperback is, is a little, little bit light on the photographs. I wish it were a little darker. Um, the script books look fine. Those look fine. But um, anyway, you can get what you can get <laughs> through Amazon. Um, there's also uh, Laurel and Hardy on stage and Laurel and Hardy on radio, which are available through uh, Tefteller Publishing, T-E-F-T-E-L-L-E-R, teftellerpublishing.com. And those are beautiful hardcover books, each of which has two CDs of very rare Laurel and Hardy material, including pilot shows for a, radio, a projected radio series that never came to fruition. But we have the pilot shows, which are basically like finding new Laurel and Hardy uh, movies. Mm -hmm. So those are available. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, the definitive restorations from uh, Kit Parker or just on whatever video source you have. And... This wonderful thing, which was put together, I had nothing to do with the with the visual portion of it outside of putting the photo galleries together. I did that, but Serge Bromberg and Eric Lang and the the people at Lobster Films were working on this for three years, working with all manner of different archives all over the world to piece together the the films. And when when I first saw these several months ago, I was just flabbergasted because, like everybody else. Uh, I would kind of avoid these films because they were such a chore to watch because of the print quality. Yeah. And uh, I think that people who program uh, uh, meetings for Sons of the Desert uh, tents are really going to profit by this new release because it's suddenly like having a dozen new films to show because now they're watchable and something new has been added, comedy. <laughs> you know, uh, now, now they're funny because, you know, you're not straining to, to figure out what you're looking at. Now these things are beautiful, and you're seeing yeah. you're seeing the quality of photography. You're, you're most of all you're seeing nuances in the performances that were totally obliterated by bad prints. You know you're seeing delicate little moments in in the performances that that make these things really. It's like seeing them for the first time, really. They really. Uh, so now, if you run a Sons of the Desert tent, now you can run Why Girls Love Sailors or Sailor Beware, and and people will actually enjoy them. Uh, so. Uh, these films really, they haven't been restored so much as resurrected. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we had copies, but they were only reference copies, really. You know, I mean, they survived, but just barely. Now they're gorgeous. And so 
Uh, I'm really looking forward to 1928 and 1929 when Laurel and Hardy have come to full fruition. That's the mm -hmm. other fascinating thing about this. As I mentioned in one of the commentaries, every other comedy team in movies came to movies from some other medium, from the theater, from vaudeville or Broadway or radio. And they came to movies having already been together, having already established their character, their personalities and their routines. Laurel and Hardy, you see that all happening on film mm -hmm. because, you know, in some films like Slipping Wives, there are just two actors in the same film and they may even be adversaries. And you gradually see, you know, they'll do one where, yep, okay, you guys, you got it there. And then the next three films, they're back to just being two actors yeah. again. Say, no, no, it's no, frustrating. No, no, no. Yeah. You know, go, go back to what you did in Duck Soup or go back to what you did in Do Detectives Think. I, I think the film where, Leo, where you can say that Leo McCary came to Hal Roach and said, let's build a series around these guys. I think the second hundred years where they're convicts, I think that's the first one. Because I have a press sheet for that, which MGM would distribute to... Uh, theater managers, which had articles that they could then give to newspapers. And it says, new starring team uncorks riotous performance in first picture as comedy duo. So they were really marketing Laurel and Hardy as a new team uh, with the second hundred years. And uh, I think from that point on, you kind of see them always together. So, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's fascinating to see it all happening. Uh, you know, and, and these are uh, uh, listed in chronological order. Of their making, not of release, because release dates don't have anything to do with it. Uh, we we do know the, the the actual production dates for each of these, so they're they're put in order of production, and that's how you can see the progression or regression of the Laurel and Hardy teaming as you watch them in order. So anyway, it's it's everything was done right on this on this set. I'm really uh, grateful that they asked me to be a part of it, and I'm very pleased with the final result. I'm pleased with it too. I'm so grateful that you were willing to talk to me about this too, oh. because I have a lot of respect and admiration for your knowledge and oh. for your passion and for your commitment to, uh, to getting these, these stories out there. So thank you for taking the time to, uh, to, to talk with me today. Sure. Sure. Uh, keep in touch. Hopefully that gets you really fired up for some Laurel and Hardy. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can check in with Randy. I'm going to put all, he gave you his links in the episode. I'm going to put them in the description of this podcast so that you can easily find those uh, you see the the knowledge if he had no notes for this he was just rattling off dates off the top of his head uh people names dates just he knows this stuff he knows it like the back of his hand so who better to talk about laurel and hardy stuff than uh than randy it's amazing and uh Another thing that's amazing is Laurel and Hardy year one. I'm going to hit this one more time because Flickr Alley did send this over and uh, I fell in love with it. I already, if you're again, if you're watching the video version, you see I've got my Laurel and Hardy collection next to me. I am a fan of Laurel and Hardy and we're living in a moment right now where people are able to discover this stuff like never before. I mean, listen, you heard the conversation. You heard the, the countless, I mean, this is people's lives. This is their life work to make these more accessible, to restore them, to find them, to seek them out. They're piecing together. He said it, he's right, I've watched these. Like they'll have to cut to like 10 seconds of an inferior source and then they cut back to it. They are splicing together from the best elements available. It is amazing. And what really you come away with is like the appreciation that, uh, gratitude, I'm gonna hit gratitude again because I think that's what it is. The, the work that goes into this for a physical media release like this to be possible, it's countless hours of, of labor 
and research and hunting and hunched over, you know, uh, a scanner, you know, this, we're talking about actual film. We're not talking about you're on a laptop and you're like, Hmm, let me cut and paste this here. We're talking about film, splicing film, putting things together manually, and then cleaning it up as best as possible digitally. I'm in awe. I'm in awe of what these guys do. Uh, but I'm also in awe of Laurel and Hardy because they're really, really funny. And uh, this is what's exciting is that this is just the beginning. We're going to be talking. Hopefully, you know, you heard we'll be talking here here talking about 1928 and 1929. I mean, this is so exciting. We are watching film history being saved like on a weekly basis. There's so many cool announcements happening all the time. We have a front row seat to the preservation of movie history. And I'm so excited about it. I know a lot of you guys are, too. So uh, let's continue to share that joy with others, you know, bring more people into the hobby, maybe show some Laurel and show it to, you know, show it to somebody in your life that you think might enjoy it. That's how this stuff lives on is by sharing it with other people and then they pick it up and then they share it with somebody. Uh, please remember to rate, to review. <laughs> this is a hard, a hard switch. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, leave uh, reviews. Uh, you can leave comments on YouTube. You can Subscribe on YouTube. You can engage by leaving a comment. Anything you do, basically anything that you do that in, engages, that shows some sort of active involvement helps Serial at Midnight. So if you want to see more conversations like this, you got to engage. Thank you so much. Remember to check out SerialAtMidnight.com for hundreds of reviews. There's a link to our Patreon uh, exclusives there. And uh, anything else that you're looking for, it's all at SerialAtMidnight.com. Thanks to Randy. Thanks to you. I appreciate you. Till next time, I will catch you later.